Hi, I am Devin Moore. I am a Humanity Rising Ambassador and the founder of Hashtag Race to Speak Up, an anti-bullying organization. Humanity Rising is a student-led movement to get a better world through service. We help students find their service passion and give them a voice to help them share what they are doing to make a positive difference in the world. Welcome to our Creating World Peace Through Unity Humanity Rising Voices podcast series, hosted by Steve Sarowitz. We are really happy to see you guys here today. Joining Steve is Saida Taylor. She prides herself on being a social justice advocate by promoting the oneness of humankind, environmental justice, and physical and spiritual health. And now I'll turn it over to Steve to begin. Well, Saida, we know each other well. And uh, I think what I'd love to talk to about organic oneness, you know, you guys, really started at the perfect time. I mean, talk about good timing, Saida. You go out and you start this brand new nonprofit to fight racism in what year? 2019, right? Uh, well, we've been doing work for quite a while, but yes, officially branding and coming up with a name in 2019 and getting tax exempt this year. <laughs> so, I mean, you really, um, yes, you know, we've been working, doing this work together for quite a while. Right. Actually, you've been doing the work a lot longer than me. I've been helping you for a few years. And, um, for five years it, now. Can you believe it? <laughs> it's been that's, one, that's wonderful. Since I became a Baha'i. Mm -hmm. um, how long have you been a Baha'i? All my life. All my life. Um, so my parents are Baha'is. Uh, but just because they're Baha'is doesn't mean I'm automatically a Baha'i uh, at the age of 15. Uh, that's when I declared in my belief of Baha'u'llah. So that is... Um, at the core of who I am. Um, and I'm considered what we say second generation Baha'i. So we still have a lot of things from the Catholic and Christian faith wrapped up, you know, our habits and everything. So it's always a journey to figure out how do we be Baha'is in this society. And your brother is also a Baha'i. He is. Yes. And very active in the faith. Yes. Andre's wonderful. Um, so does this influence what you're doing with organic oneness? Oh my gosh, yes, yes. Um, it's, it's influenced everything that I've done, I think, in my entire life. Um, the Baha'i faith gives me uh, my, my core feeling, my centeredness in justice. Uh, and, and everything that revolves around that is how I function in life. And so when I was in fourth grade and a principal, you know, I went to public school and a principal wanted to hit one of the students with a long ruler in front of us. And he asked the students if they wanted to witness that, if they wanted to see it, did he deserve it? And I was the only one in my classroom that raised my hand and said, no, I don't want to see this. He doesn't deserve that. Um, and and I, it, since, since then, I've always been challenging how things function and how things are. And then in sixth grade, I saw what a private school looks like. I went to Latin school <laughs> and then I compared it with my grammar school. And I was like, wait a minute, wait, why do they get to have a school like that? And I have a different school. And so, so you know, the, the Baha'i faith, one of the principles is independent investigation of truth. And so I'm always on that journey. Let's get to the heart of this. What is the truth of the matter? What is the root cause of this? Why are things the way they are? Uh, and so, so that drives everything I do. And so when the, as I grew, my, my side projects just got bigger and bigger and bigger. They got so big that I then need a fiscal agent and I needed all kinds of stuff. And that's when we cross paths. Um, and I was doing a big project in Bronzeville, year-long initiative with uh, key stakeholders and community leaders in, in Bronzeville. Um, and you stepped in at the perfect time <laughs> to propel well, that forward. <laughs> speaking of Bronzeville, we have a very good mutual friend. Yes, we do. Chris Harris. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so he was on our show before. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, they're, ga they're galas actually tonight, so. <laughs> Which is why I couldn't go to the gala, so we can't go to the gala. <laughs> right. Um, so, but uh, I'm actually taking him to Pittsburgh next week. Oh, nice, nice. So we're going to uh, go with my friend Bill Strickland, mm -hmm. uh, 
and we're going to see his center in Pittsburgh because uh, Pastor Harris wants to build a center here. I said, you have to come to Pittsburgh with me. So we're going to Pittsburgh next week. Mm -hmm. Nice, nice. But um, now you do a lot of work with Dr. Joy DeGruy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. Tell, tell me how you started doing that work with Dr. Joy DeGruy and why she's so important to you. Oh my gosh, she's heaven sent. Um, so the first time I heard her talk was when I was in college. And um, since sixth grade of trying to understand why did my school look the way it did, <laughs> I had been on this journey like, what, what is going on? Why is everything the way it is? And it was when I saw her in college that she, was, she explained exactly what I was questioning all those years. Uh, and so her talk on axiology, which is the, um, the, the study of cultural values, um, and post-traumatic slave syndrome, which talks about the legacy of this country and, and how things are today because of it, that opened my eyes to a whole new way of being. It, it was like I was awakened. Um, and because she has the Baha'i faith as her fuel, um, it's very deep-seated in the principles also of understanding truth and justice and how can we get to a place of unity and peace with understanding this? Um, and so when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, everybody, everybody, everyone that I come in you have to understand this truth. Because from that truth, then you can start to heal. Then you can start to figure out how do you move forward? Um, and so, you know, when the opportunity came to work with Brownsville and, you know, Pastor Harris that we were talking about, you know, he was talking about uh, looking at the violence and how do you heal from the trauma. And I was like, oh my gosh, you have to hear Dr. DeGruy. You know, she will lay the foundation of what we need to do to continue doing the work. Um, and so ev everything I do stems from, of course, the Baha'i faith, but then using Dr. DeGruy's research and frameworks and everything that she talks about to guide how do we implement these principles of truth and justice. Uh, so I, she, she's definitely, you know, my spiritual aunt. Um, I, I consider her one of my mentors in life. Uh, so so she, she definitely helps me shape how we do things with organic oneness, along with my nine wonderful, amazing board members. Um, so I, I feel blessed to have all these people in my life. And your funders. Don't forget to thank your, fund, your funders. I know, Steve. I never know how loud I can be about that. I, I want to tweet about it every single day. So we'll definitely have to talk about, you know, how, how much I can cherish you and, and applaud you. That's good enough. You can stop there. You can go back to joy. Um, I could do it daily. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but, uh, you know, for me as a funder of Organic Oneness, as one of many funders of Organic Oneness, um, we're just always looking for people to put our places, to put our money that can really do the work. And we're grateful because it's hard to do that work. I mean, the work you're doing is not easy. Um, in a recent letter uh, from the Universal House of Justice, it says that every, basically every gain we make is gonna get met with great resistance. It's a rocky road. I think it uses that word rocky. Yeah, long, it says long and thorny road, beset long and thorny with, road. Pits, yeah. with pitfalls. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, used the, I used the wrong word, but, um, but that's because people are comfortable in the way they are. What's really interesting is that same letter says that racism deprives some of us of the right to you know, full equality and oppresses us. And it's a blight upon the rest of humanity, all of humanity. And so what people don't realize when they're advocating for racism, which some people are still doing, is that it's actually hurting them. Right, right. Yeah, racism, uh, I, I, Ruha Benjamin, uh, Dr. Ruha Benjamin, we recently had a talk with her. Uh, and, and in her talk, she, she says that racism uh, distorts the way we see other people and it distorts the way we see ourselves. Uh, and so it, it, yeah, we, we, we're not seeing clearly um, through the lens of racism and we're, we're all brainwashed and conditioned 
um, and drowning in the toxins of this, you know, so how do we get to a place where we can see clearly, you know, and that's where the, the Baha'i faith for me gives me that clear vision. It, it, it unveils what's going on and it gives me that spiritual grounding to, to see the realities of what's going on. You know, if I'm in, if I'm in a room full of people, how I see justice is everyone is being treated like a noble human being. Everybody has the same opportunities. Everybody is able to fulfill their purpose. And so until we get to that point, then we have to constantly be rematrixing and reconditioning our thinking and holding people accountable. And that's one thing that people don't like when, when they're around me, if I'm in a meeting or if I'm on the bus, in the, anywhere I'm at, if you're going to treat someone unjustly, or if you're going to come into a meeting with a behavior that is bullying everybody and we're supposed to come be solution oriented, I will most likely probably 99% of the time hold those people accountable. And it makes everybody else feel uncomfortable, you know, because they, they want me to Saida, don't not today. No, come on Saida. And, and, and the way I see it is that if I don't hold them accountable, and help them see the pain and the injury that they're inflicting on other people, then I'm just as guilty. I'm just as guilty being silent. And, and so- you're, And you're really right. helping them most of all. Right, Because right. at the end of the day, you know, so one of the, so I'm, I'm doing a lot of different projects. One of the projects I'm involved in is I'm fighting for justice uh, for Jamel Roberson, uh, who was killed Whoa. over a year and a half ago. And so I've been, I'm, I've been helping his mother for, a, a while now. Um, really? Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, well, I haven't done a good enough job because that's why you don't know. But we did make a video, which we're going to release pretty soon. Okay. And we're looking to get some legal help from both DePaul and U of I on this, hopefully both of them, to try and figure out a way to 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 bring this case to the forefront. It's a, it's a travesty of justice, but it was a dark nightclub. Uh, the, the story is, uh, you, you've heard the story, but just for those who haven't, um, it was a dark nightclub. Uh, Jamel Roberson was a security guard. He was a hero, uh, as, as the NRA likes to say, a good guy with a gun. And this good guy with a gun actually um, found, he actually found the gun on the floor. Another security person had dropped it. And he picked it up and he subdued one of the people who was involved in, in a fatal altercation. And he had that person subdued on the floor and he was talking to him and saying, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Jamel was a big man like me, well, as tall as me, but, but like two of me. He was bigger and stronger and younger and faster, most likely. And he, he was, you know, he did a great thing by getting this, and a brave thing by getting this person on the ground. And he wasn't doing any harm to anybody. And so Ian Covey, a policeman, burst in. Now, there was other policemen already on the scene. According to reports, he burst in with an AR-15, pushed another guy who'd already been shot aside, and said, oh, you guys are always getting shot as he did it. Hopped on the bar with his AR-15 and then proceeded to shoot Jamel. Hmm. So, I mean, just in the, all in the span of about a minute, uh, he came in and kind of like Rambo. And um, the problem is it was a dark bar. Uh, people were shouting at Jamel was security, but you know, they've muddied it to the point where they're saying it's not a murder. Um, and, you know, I don't know, I wasn't there. I didn't see it, but to me, I've, I've studied it for a while and I think it was a murder. I really think, you know, and I, I'm not saying that Ian Covey went there with the idea of, of killing Jamel Roberson, but he did take the life of a man. He shot him four times in the back and he, and he shot the life. And Jamel was not a, you know, he was not pointing a gun at him. He was not threatening him in any way. In, in other words, uh, he, he just didn't assess the situation. At the very least, he didn't assess the situation correctly. And there's never been any, um, any um, justice, any justice in this, and so. And so you're making a movie about this now. Well, we made we made a video about it. You we made a video. video, and I was talking to. Actually, there's a point to this story. I'm going to bring it back to the point now. I was talking to Beatrice okay. Jamel's mother today, and I said, you know, I hope for Ian Covey's sake, the policeman, that justice is brought on this earth, 
not in the next. Because mm -hmm. the Baha'i writings, I don't know if you've ever read this in the Baha'i writings, but the Baha'i writings say very, very clearly that justice is much harder in the next realm. And for a criminal, mm -hmm. it is much better for them to have justice in this realm. Wow. So the person who will suffer the most if justice isn't done by far is Ian Covey. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for always being a part of, you know, <laughs> all these different projects. I don't even know how you have the time um, to do all that you do and, and, and understand everything that's going on everywhere, you know, and, and, and just have influence over it. That's incredible. Well, I, I'm very fortunate to have the resources to work with people like you. So I can say, well, I work with Organic Wonders. <laughs> you know darn well I don't do anything. You do all the work. No, you do, you do plenty, you know. And, and, I, and I don't think people with your capacity understands truly, you know, just what a, what a gift it is because I'm able to fulfill my purpose in service because of your gift. You know, and so I, I wouldn't be able to do this. I just wouldn't. There's no way. There was a, a great article in Forbes today about a man that most people don't ever don't know his name. Uh, have you ever heard the name Chuck Feeney? <laughs> yeah. How have you heard With of Chuck Duty Feeney? Free. With Duty Free. So he started Duty Free and then he had a spend down or a uh, global organization called Atlantic Philanthropies. I know him very well. And um, how did you know that? How did I know that? So I was one of the directors of his uh, Elevate program in Chicago. Well, in it, we had a school in Chicago. I was one of the directors there, but that was his um, uh, United uh, States initiative. So it was for middle school wraparound services. And um, yeah, it was a phenomenal. And I think that's where a lot of my skills got refined um, was at Revis Elementary when I had to implement uh, this initiative. And so we did it in about uh, four to five years. Uh, we built a health center. Uh, we had uh, uh, parent programs. We uh, taught the community um, how to mobilize uh, systemic change by you know, advocating for certain resolutions and bills. Uh, we had out-of-school time programs, um, just everything that you can possibly want. It was like the community schools on steroids. You know, we just had the resources um, because of Chuck Feeney um, to, to do phenomenal work. So we brought the Freedom Schools uh, summer program there. Um, yeah, yeah. So thanks for just saying that name because I, I still talk to a lot of the staff that worked with me during the Elevate initiative um, because it was such a, a, an amazing time, not only for the children, but for all of us. We really built our capacity in many ways there. Well, I know the name because I was about 10 to 15 feet away from him when he received his Lifetime Philanthropy Award. What? Yeah, I just happened to be front row. Um, wow. An event. Um, so just, you know, I, I'm in rooms that, you know, you never would imagine. I'm, I'm in rooms I'd never imagined I'd be in because I grew up middle class, but I happen to be there to see it. But yeah, very inspirational to many people like me. And there was an article about him that someone sent me today that just came out in Forbes um, about him giving away his $8 billion plus dollar fortune. And now he's nothing. He's finished it. He's done. So he did it. He did it. He's 89 years old. He did it. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, I remember the letters that he used to write to other uh, millionaires and billionaires um, uh, encouraging to do that, you know, and I remember one one sentence really stuck out at me and, and he basically said, you know, do all that you can here on earth, you know, you cannot take this with you. Um, and so yeah, amazing gentleman. Yeah. So he's a, you know, he's an inspiration. I'm nowhere near what he was in you know, any way, shape or form or what he is because he's still alive. Although he's, I'm sure 89, you know, maybe not what he was 30 years, you know, 20, you were probably doing this about 20 years ago. Uh, 2008 to 2014. So 12, 12 years ago. Yeah, so, you know, so he was a lot younger then. And, uh, and anyway, he, he was a lot younger when he started this process. Um, 
but he um, he's an inspiration to a lot of us. As somebody of wealth, um, what the Baha'i faith says is that wealth, but for a few, wealth is a burden, actually, but for a mm-hmm. few wealthy people. So wealth is actually a great burden. And it's really only a benefit to you being wealthy if you use it for the betterment of the world, if you detach from the wealth. Attachment to material things, according to the Baha'i faith, is hell. Um, you know, what is heaven and what is hell? Heaven is reunion with God, according to Baha'u'llah. He says, heaven is reunion with me, meaning God. And hell, reunion with thyself, meaning your selfish desires. Mm-hmm. So, your ego, yeah. So for me, I can buy anything I want, pretty much. You know, literally, you know, I can buy a house, car, you know, the nicest, whatever. I can buy a jet. Wouldn't phase me at all. I can buy a couple. And... But that's not going to benefit my soul. And we are ultimate, ultimately our souls. But I could also give money to organic oneness and I could give money to other nonprofits. And that benefits my soul. And it gives people like you a chance to spread your wings. We have a lot of work to do in this world to heal this world. So let's talk about so healing others. So, you know, a lot of people are out there saying, you know, I'm woke now. They are maybe not woke, but, you know, wait a second. Black Lives Matter. What do I do? And so what was, what are some of the things you would say to someone like that who's just woken up and said, hey, you know, maybe there's a little injustice in the world and maybe I want to do something. What would you say to that person? So the assumption in that question is that it's a a person that is not a person of color. Yes. Okay. Probably. Problem. About 99%. So what I would say to people that are just waking up to this is uh, do your homework. (laughs) Do your homework. You know, so many of us, as as I was talking before, you know, as, as black and brown people in this country, we had to relearn our history. We had to figure out what happened. We had to learn about the truth and come into that truth. And we're still trying to figure out how to do that and be liberated from this this, um, unjust climate. And so, you know, what, what what I would tell people not to do is to go to your black and brown friend right now and say, oh, what should I do? What can I do? Because the black and brown community is exhausted, exhausted. And so, you know, get, of course, if you have very dear friends, yes, but mm, even then do your homework, like look at movies um, that are, um, you know, that, that talk about the history you know, 13th Amendment, um, you know, just, I can't even think of. Post-traumatic <laughs> slaves. <laughs> yeah, so many, so many. Get books, you know, um, The Color of Law, uh, the New Jim Crow Laws, the uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome. You know, look at books. Um, I got this new one. There's, it's right here. Uh, I got this new one, too, um, that I'm reading. I was just told by another Baha'i friend to read that today. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to read. you got to understand. You like that book? What... Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no sure. Sure. One more time. To, let's talk about that book real quick because people just saw it real quickly. It's called Okay. Path. Well, I just, I am just in the first <laughs> because my okay. brother is making me read the new John Crow laws again. And so for a book thing. So I had to, I'm in between both, but I didn't uh, get far. I just started. Um, but, uh, and, and so that's, that's what I would recommend to people is th- start looking at your circle, you know, start paying attention to, and count, count how many black people and Latino people and people of indigenous background are in my Facebook. How many, you know, do I converse with every single day? W- what does my neighborhood look like? Have I surrounded myself with, you know, just people that look like me? In, in your uh, houses of worship, who, who's there? You know, at the restaurants that you go to, who's there? How diverse is your life? And so once you start paying attention to that and literally start counting every day, count how many people did I interact with? 
And what was that interaction like? Was I giving and contributing or was I taking and using that relationship to my benefit? Start asking those questions. You know, how are you not centering yourself with every situation that occurs? You know, so how can you be in the room and listen and understand someone else's story that is not in relation to how you are experiencing it? How, get outside of yourself. Um, and if you have children, then start exposing them. I know so many people are like, oh, I don't want my child to, you know, hear about this. It's, you know, it's harsh. Well, guess what? Black and brown children grow up from day one when they have to go to school dealing with this. The parents prepare them how to be in this world from day one. So if, 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 if black and brown children are, have to go through that, then white children also must go through this lesson. Um, and so, you know, so, so, so those are just some recommendations. Immerse yourself, immerse yourself. Um, how do you, uh, let me, let me, add, one, let me ask one follow-up question Okay. because, uh, this is really for youth. So okay. now let's take this follow-up question. I'm going to extend this to youth of all ages. Okay. You know, now we're talking about someone who's 15, 16, 17, 18 mm -hmm. in high school. How does someone who's young of all colors and, and, and uh, shapes and sizes, women, girl, girls, and boys, how do they, um, how do they affect change? Because if you're young, so what can youth do in this issue? Um, so for youth at that age, um, some of the same things that I said before, you know, immerse yourself in, in different things. You know, what are, what are you choosing to watch? What are you, you know, when you encounter somebody that says something that is, uh, incorrect, politically incorrect or unjust or, you know, what are you, do you have the courage? I would, I, I ask, so for that age group, develop courage um, to speak on behalf of justice. And so how do you do that? One is to understand, and, and young people are very good at this, at, at an understanding that, you know, we're all connected, you know, um, and, and so how do you deepen that? How do you strengthen that? How do you center yourself? Because sometimes our parents, um, you know, don't have those same beliefs. So, um, read, read a lot of books on, um, you know, and now they're, they're YouTube videos, pay attention to what you're looking at. Are you, are you looking at stuff that is divisive and, and, propels your thinking into more stereotypes or are you looking at materials you know clips um, stuff that helps you understand everybody as one human family so what are you looking at what does your social media look like what do your friends look like you know um, so the same thing immerse yourself with diversity as much as you can and uh, there's something you know you done a lot with junior youth correct along the long along and a long time ago I did I used to have um, a, a group called Baha'i Youth Service Institute and then uh, both Kelsey my husband and I worked with uh, youth in here in Bronzeville and that's one of the reasons why we moved to Bronzeville um, called the Gap Community Project so, so that was a long time ago <laughs> a couple years ago, years ago. <laughs> So, but the reason I point that out is because I'm, I'm actually, for the first time, believe it or not, taking a, a class uh, along with uh, Humanity Rising, actually, uh, with um, doing junior youth, how to, how to lead a junior youth class. Mm. And one of the key things that I, I, I'm getting from the class is that we can't look at youth as just, oh, they're just going to play around. We'll teach them later when they become adults. Oh, no, they are. They are leaders from the start <laughs> from the start and so i was going to say that's really what humanity rising is all about so i think it's really great that you're saying this for humanity rising because you're saying it to an audience of already empowered youth like devin who introduced you who's mm -hmm. already got his own nonprofit. yeah so I, I think it's great um 
I, I really think that um, for me, one of the big things that you could do better is to really work on spiritual empowerment. We live in a world that's so material. Um, I live in an area that's very material, but in general, our society is all about materialism. Yeah. And I really think we should, I always say this, and I say it over and over again, because I don't think you can say it enough, that every day we have to feed ourselves spiritually like we do materially, only most people don't think to. So if you don't think to feed yourself, it's like if you starved yourself materially, right. you're starving at the end of the day. And if someone gave you Cheetos or junk food, uh, McDonald's French fries, although, so I'm sure a lot of the kids like that, but you know that's probably not what you want to subsist on. Right. But if you haven't gotten anything better than that, that's going to feel great to you. And so it's the same thing with spirituality that I really think it's very important for youth to feed themselves spiritually. And I think that's a big part of service because that makes you much more prepared to serve. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, youth have a sense of creativity and understanding of hope uh, that, that kind of gets jaded in our adult years. And so for us to hold on to that and, and see the world through their eyes of the possibilities, um, it, it, we, we would definitely be in a better place. And all our work in organic oneness, um, our, our mission, I don't think I said our mission um, before, but and we just changed it, so let's see if I have it memorized. Uh, our, our organic oneness is a social justice a grassroots social justice organization that co-creates with communities, let's see, with communities um, to mobilize systemic change, healing and wellness, foregrounding, that's very important, foregrounding black, indigenous, and people of color. And um, all that to say is that uh, our purpose what we do is trying to uh, purify and detoxify the ecosystem of youth. So we work with a lot of adults, um, you know, the educators, the healthcare practitioners, the police officers. Uh, we work with faith-based leaders, um, every entity that is in the community so that youth, so that all the adults can get on the same page so that youth can thrive. Um, because the police department has different rules and different codes and different ways of being than the education system, which is different from the healthcare system, which is different from, you know, and all of it falls under the umbrella of how, you know, uh, white supremacy kind of shapes the, the country. And so if we can get everyone on the same page with understanding the truth, understanding what justice truly is, um, then our youth can thrive and fulfill their purpose and bring themselves fully to humanity and serve in a way that can advance society uh, like we've never seen before. You know, can you imagine if everyone is liberated from racism and sexism and materialism and capitalism and all these isms, and we can just focus on what is our gift? What is it that God gave to us that is supposed to contribute to the advancement of society. What is that? Because right now, so many of our youth, especially in the black and brown communities, are, are focused on trying not to get killed, trying to you know, just figure out what, how to be educated, just figuring out how to get healthy food. You know, so we're in this survival mode all the time, just trying to prove ourselves. But if we remove that, that element, then we can thrive and really contribute of what we were supposed to do that God bestowed upon us. Um, and so, so yeah, youth, youth, youth are, are the reason why, uh, why all of us, the board members and myself are doing what we do. Um, I was just talking about this earlier tonight, uh, actually with, uh, with my wife as a Catholic or group that so we had this discussion and we had me and myself and three Catholics were discussing it, but one of them was a nun and she was talking about the desegregation, the integration of schools in New Orleans in the late sixties. 
And I said, it failed because we didn't desegregate hearts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're in the business of doing is changing hearts. Changing hearts. Yeah, for sure. On, on the individual level, that is definitely the thing that, that needs to change, you know, and, and there's, there's uh, the, the three areas is our individual selves. Um, there is the community. Uh, and then there's the institutional. So those three things we definitely have to focus. And along with our heart, we have to learn how to love and bring that in. Um, and, and with love, it's interesting because, you know, just being married for 23 years, <laughs> you learn that you're not really loving the way you're supposed to love. And so that in itself is a, is a lesson, you know, uh, the way I need to be loved isn't the way everybody else needs to be loved. You know, I'm a very, I love to be, you know, the, the five love languages, if anybody can get their hands on that, you can see how many different ways of loving. And so you can put all your energy into loving somebody, but if that's not how they want to be loved, you're wasting your time and your energy, you know, and, and, and so there's that conflict, but then now you throw race on top of that. Now you throw what your gender is on top of that. You know, there are a lot of different elements. So when we say we have to love humanity, it's not just a matter of being nice or kind. It, love is a lot of work, you know, and that's getting to know who's in your life. That's getting to understand them at the deepest, most intimate levels that only spirituality can bring you. And, 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 then, and then using all your energy to make that person feel like the most noble and loved human being. If we could do that for each other, then we can get to a place of peace and unity. But to understand love, that's a crucial element, a crucial ingredient to this formula. And so, so yeah, so that long and thorny road, <laughs> it's going to take a lot of patience, detachment, love, forgiveness, you know, all the virtues um, that we, that as a society, tend to stay away from. You know, we, we think it's taboo. We think it's religious. We think it's, you know, and so, so if we say, uh, you know, something like we have to be merciful, you know, that oh, oh, we have to be compassionate, that scares some people. But those are the elements that's going to get us to this new way of being together. Absolutely. And, you know, that same letter says we can't do this through conflict and contention, that we have to do this through love. You know, and so love is ultimately our solution. And you see out there in the streets, and, and I commend people, I mean, I think they're trying to do it for the right reasons, you know, on both, well, on one side, the people that are fighting racism, but doing it in, a, in trying to do it with conflict, you know, some of them I think have the right idea, but maybe the wrong method. You know, some of the some people are angry, you know, legitimately angry because of the oh, things rightfully you said. so, right? But right. unfortunately, taking out the anger by burning someone's store down or by looting, that doesn't solve the problem. Ultimately, it doesn't solve the problem. Whereas the anger might be justified the solution we really have to always remind people the solution is not that the solution is to take that anger and that passion for justice and put it into love it has to always be infused with love it has it, it definitely has to be infused with love however uh those of us that have the capacity to do that should do that um and and if we can create an environment where others can do that, then that's where our focus should be. So when, when people are either protesting or looting, um, I think that is a level that shows us the amount of pain that they're going through, you know? And so it's that pain that I wanna address and see, you know, what, what caused that? You know, we, we definitely have to look deeper um, and, you know, what, what would take you to a place, Steve? What would take you to a place that you would actually carry that out, you know? And, and so then that's where I start to kind of unpack, like, what would make me so angry that I felt that that was the only solution for that moment in time? And so when I'm unpacking that, 
that's where truth and justice really play in, you know, the, uh, seeing a lot of these communities that don't have the amenities, just the basic am amenities. Um, and then having to now with COVID see the data that so many people are, are you know, dying in our communities. Um, and, and then on top of that, now I have to teach my child how to do work on the computer when I don't even have Wi-Fi or an email, you know, how much can a, a human being take? Uh, and, and so, so I think right now we're just in a place in humanity where we're going to get different reactions to what's going on. There are those that can definitely say, okay, you know, let's have a, a book a club. There are those that have to, you know, um, go the opposite route and say, I have to do this. My son, every day he leaves the house is at chances of being killed. And so those are very two different dynamics that, that communities are living in. And so we, we have to figure out as youth, every age, every adult, how do we balance out the systems so that there's true equity, so that everybody has what they need? Um, and, and one thing in terms of love, um, so in, in terms of, uh, so my background is in community development and social justice, that's what I have my master's in. And what, what we always talked about was more policing isn't gonna get to the solution. What's gonna get to the solution is communities knowing each other, people knowing each other, people caring about each other. So, but, but the way some of the communities are built are so torn apart that there are no community centers. There's no place for communities to congregate or get to know each other. And so how do we create this healthy community with the basic needs um, and, and, and so those that have power or influence or comfort or privilege, that should be the focus. How do you bring these amenities? How do you bring that to other communities without gentrifying? You know, so that's, that's the tricky thing, you know, um, and, and, and just hold ourselves accountable, you know, to, to figuring out these systems together. But, we uh, are 40, believe it or not, we've been talking for 45 minutes. It could have been Oh two. my goodness. <laughs> I know. So that just wanted, means we have to have lunch soon, Steve. <laughs> we do. You know, it's this COVID thing. I know. I know. Devin's back. Yay, Devin. Well, we can go on another bike ride. All right. Oh, which, uh, yeah, on October 17th, there is a bike ride. We're bringing black and brown communities together in solidarity through uh, North Lawndale and Little Village. So you definitely have to come back out for that. I will come back out for that. Um, so Devin, uh, you've got Sida now and I'm sure you've got some questions for Sida. Um, and uh, we could probably talk for another three hours but I'm gonna turn it over to Devin right now to ask a couple of questions. Yes, I have some questions for Sida. So, Sida, do you think that the world would still have a lot of hate even if there wasn't racism? Um, so, I, I believe that racism is a societal ill, a spiritual ill. Um, and so, just to eradicate that alone doesn't get to the deeper issue of what, what, what the world is going through. So, if it's not racism, then it's then we're suffering from the environment not being healthy. If it's not that, then we're suffering from sexism. If it's not that, we're suffering from materialism. Um, so there are all these things. In America, uh, racism is the most vital and challenging issue. Um, and ignoring that issue exposes us to moral, physical, and spiritual danger. So that's, that's what's happening here. But in other parts of the world, it's, it's very different because they don't have the diversity that we have here. Um, and so it, it, it will definitely make things better, but if people don't get to the core understanding that we are all interconnected, and 
my pain will impact you and your pain influences how I am as a human being until we get to that understanding with each other. And then also on top of that, understand that same connection with people and the earth, we're not gonna get to a place of peace and unity. So it's all those things encompassed together and that's a spiritual reality. And so until we get to that spiritual understanding, we're not gonna attain peace and unity. Did that answer your question? <laughs> oh, yes, it, it, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, I get what you mean. Like, if we didn't have, well, if we didn't have racism, there, because that's really a problem that's really in our faces, a lot of people see that. But if we didn't have that, we would still be faced with all these other isms that you were talking about, which is honestly really sad because those isms are still something that people do face. But it is something that would just be more in our faces. So it's honestly just sad, but... I have another question. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to someone who opposes Black Lives Matter? I mean, I know how you said that Black and Brown communities are tired of having to explain our fights and the hate that we go through. So when someone opposes Black Lives Matter, do you think there's a way to calmly tell them otherwise? Or is there even a way to tell them calmly? So someone who doesn't support Black Lives Matter, how do, how do you approach or them? It, or opposes to it. Or, or opposes, opposes it. it. Yeah, I think that is probably the number one question, Devin. Um, you know, and I still struggle with that because our tendencies are to just cut people out. You know, forget it. I don't want to deal with them. Um, they don't get it. I'm not going to waste my time on them. You know, I got to live my life. I got to heal. I got to survive. Uh, but sometimes those people are in our family. Sometimes those people uh, go to the same faith community that we're in, um, you know, and so how do we work through that? And so I'm just, I'm brainstorming now. Um, I would, I would try because it's, it's very hard to convince people, right? right it really now. is. It's really, really hard to convince people. Um, but what I would ask them is, you know, uh, Pe Peggy McIntosh, I believe she, she did phenomenal work and she, she did, she works primarily with the white communities and she did the, uh, the brown eye, uh, blue eye experiment. I don't know if you are familiar with that, but that, that she, yes, I am. yeah, so she, so, so she did a talk one time and she asked the, the white community, uh, would you switch your life? with someone in the black community, you know, with, is that the kind of life that you want? And nobody raised their hand, nobody stood up, you know, and, and so I think posing those questions back to the people that are saying, you know, oh, I don't believe in Black Lives Matter, will say, well, do you think it's fair that black and brown communities have to live like this? Are you aware of the history? Are you aware of how things got to this point. Are you aware of why people are angry? Are you aware of why there's violence? You know, do you honestly believe that people are inherently violent because of the color of their skin? Do you, do you believe people deserve less than you? And why is that? You know, there's this thing that's, um, uh, people of European descent are charged with, and this says in the in the Baha'i writings, um, to to look at, and I'm totally paraphrasing, Steve, if you have it, but just you know, there is this subconscious inherent superiority complex that they need to check, and so it's that separation, it's that it, it's them thinking that they're above all of humanity and dehumanizing other people to think that it's okay, that they're less than, they deserve less than. You know, so we have to get to this place of helping people understand that we're all human beings. We all feel the same pain. We all want love and recognition and to fulfill our purpose and, and say, why do you think that this community wants something different? That's very true. I mean, so I spoke with Jane Elliott before I met her, 
and um, love meeting her. So she actually, I was talking to her about racial justice. She was actually telling me that we need to focus on human justice. Our differences do, there's a, our differences are just our differences. We just happen to be born this way. We look this way. I'm black. This other person looks like this. You look this, like this. Everyone else looks different. We all look different. But we need, we really do need to understand that we are all humans. We're all a part of one human race. And our differences make us unique. Like, I wouldn't want to look exactly like another person. You know, I wouldn't want to look like someone else in a Zoom call. You wouldn't want to look like someone else in a Zoom call. Everything would be the same if we all look the same. That's why we really need to embrace and respect our differences. We need to respect that Black people have definitely been hurt. We've been put through so much, and we still get put through so much. We need to respect that we are all different and that Black lives have been traumatized, even when you guys were talking about before, um, post-traumatic slave syndrome and a bunch of other things that Black people have gone through, segregation, we still go through hate, police brutality, the fact that we even have to protest for Black Lives Matter, the fact that I, as a 16-year-old Black male, went to two Black Lives protests, um, Black Lives Matter protests, as well as a memorial for George Floyd, is saying something. That's mm-hmm. saying something. And, Even and that's at any age. It's really saying something. That's why we need to all understand that we're all human. And also, Black lives should have mattered from the start. But we don't need to hate on Black people. We don't need to um, hate on Brown people. We don't need to hate on anyone. Um, that actually leads me into my other question, but I know you were about to say something. So what we I, just, to say? I just want to say something, Devin, that bravo. And now I'm going to shut up. I've said enough. Bravo. Thank you. I mean, honestly, I, okay, I don't want to go too into this, but like, I know I have, um, I, well, I'd say I do have a lot of white friends, so they aren't exactly, they don't exactly know, you know, a lot about what it's like being, they don't know what it's like being a black person. They don't know the experiences. They don't know the crazy things I heard or the crazy things I've seen or the horrible things I've been told or at least from a personal perspective. So so you so what what I heard is that you appreciate when they come to you to understand. Now I um I appreciate it. The only reason why is because they want to be educated. They want to be educated and they know that I know would know a lot more. They know that I would want them to of course educate themselves on their own, do a lot of research. As you said, do a lot of research because black and brown communities are tired of having to explain these things. But with me, I'm honestly very happy to explain these things because you guys don't know. I mean, they I'm not, not you guys. They don't know. Well, me guys don't know. Huh? Oh, I mean, you know, like you yeah. just don't, you don't know. And I want to educate you so that you do know, so that you don't accidentally say something or accidentally do something. Because I know that they may not necessarily want to do anything bad on purpose or say anything bad on purpose. That's the only reason why, from like my personal perspective, I'd be fine with that. But I really get it because I wouldn't want to have to like explain that to a bunch of different people. Um, I mean, you see it on the news all the time: Black people have been killed from Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, George Floyd. There's so many names that I can list off of the top of my head, and that is sad. That's really sad. Mm-hmm. Now, I um, honestly. I want to lead that into the next question, but do you have anything to add on before I ask you another question? Oh, no, no. I definitely love the concept of, you know, we are one human family and the unity and diversity as, you know, just like uh, flowers of one garden, you know, how beautiful the diversity and the fragrances and everything is. Um, and, And we should get to a point that we not only just tolerate or, you know, but we use the word embrace, that we embrace and we treasure and we, you know, understand that that's, that our differences are a gift to us, that we can see world through a different way. And I feel like, you know, those differences are like a puzzle that once we put everything together, you know, we can see the bigger picture of humanity. Uh, and so, so no, what I just, I just wanted to say thank you for, for your comments on that. And if you do have patience, yes, uh, by all means, you know, and, and those are our dear friends that we have patience with, right? You know, like if yeah. uh, I, I have a lot of friends that, you know, can ask me serious questions and, 
and I don't take offense. It's not exhausting. Those are our friends. Um, it's, it's the people that we say, oh, this is, you know, that don't, that don't know us and didn't care to know us from before, you know? So, so those are the people that I'm referring to, um, that, uh, that it's, it's kind of a little bit of exhausting, um, because you, you almost have to code switch for them, you know, that they don't know your authentic self yet. Um, so that's, yeah, but go on with your third question. When the so when the youth are really young, like in kindergarten, they don't usually or or they just don't really look at race. But as they get older, they start looking at each other's differences. Do you think that development or that realizing that we all look and act different comes from their home environment? Yeah, no, it definitely comes from from your your environment um, that you're exposed to on a consistent basis. Uh, and then how you, you know, so, so children really mimic how adults are, you know, so if they're seeing their caregivers or the people in their house respond a certain way, then they're going to take on those characteristics and they're going to start to play out those responses. Um, and so, yes, if, if children grew up with love and diversity in their home and, you know, and, and that's the focus, they're going to exemplify that in any arena that they're in. But if they grew up in a household where, you know, people are talking about uh, people of different races or different religions and different things, when that child leaves the home and they hear these things, they're going to respond the way their parents or their caregivers will respond. Uh, and, and so that, that starts very young. By the time they get to school, they're programmed a certain way. And so if the teacher isn't conscious of trying to create an atmosphere of love, unity, kindness, compassion, and all these virtues of how we should be together as human beings, they're going to continue being programmed the way their parents and their caregivers and the people in their house are programmed. Uh, and so that's why it's very important for us to, you know, people that believe in diversity and loving humanity, they expose their children to everything as much as they can, uh, because they know that that will be the, how they see the world and how they play out and how they respond. So, 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 the children are very uh, flexible, for lack of a better word. You know, when they're in kindergarten, they can still learn different things. They can still learn, you know, but as we get older, we become more set in our ways. You know, honestly, um, just personally, I think that if, like, say, if I were, like, right now seeing how kids interact with each other, going from like kindergarten to say like fourth grade, I feel like I start to see a lot of the differences and like see the flexibility that, I, the flexibility that you were talking about. Or even you, I feel like if you were to see that from like around that age, maybe like kindergarten is like this, I feel like we see a lot of like the differences being like developed. I think that, um, that honestly just kind of seems like, I mean, us seeing each other's differences is like not exactly a good thing. I think we need to embrace each other's differences, which that would be a good thing. But I mean, it seems as though it's just a natural part of life, unfortunately, even though you learn that from your environment, it's not exactly good to be hating on each other's differences, but we do start to see each other's differences from a very young age. Right. And right. Um, yeah, that's why I, well, there's many reasons as to why I, um, Dealing with my organization, my anti-bullying organization, hashtag race to speak up. I like to tell the youth at any age, but I like to target, uh, well, I like to target all the youth, but I like teaching the way younger youth. Like I one time um, spoke at a fifth grade, um, I spoke to a bunch of fifth graders, explaining to them the different types of bullying and how to identify it and showing them that there was like, Diff there's we are different but we need to embrace each other's differences that really seem to like click with them they seem to understand that 
wow, we are different. I don't look like her. I don't look like him. But they understood it. And I think that if, like, say maybe, like, maybe not the diverse, maybe not very diverse schools were to try to do that, I think it would just be more beneficial to the students in a way. You know what I mean? I hope that made sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. And we all have just so much work to do. And, you know, the, the work that you just mentioned, I just, it's, um, it's incredible. And I just want to thank you both, you know, for, for this opportunity. Saida, and I'm going to say Devin as well. Thank you both for educating me tonight, as well as our listeners. Uh, you know, Devin, I have to say that we saved the best for last, just let you talk. I think Saida and I could have just been quiet and let you do it. And, uh, and the other thing I'll say is that, you know, you're right online with, you know, you've heard me talk a lot about the Baha'i faith. And you're, uh, you're doing a wonderful job of getting those principles out there. If one more question, and why don't we call it a night? And the question is from Debbie Feruzzi. Um, you want to go with it, Devin, or you want me to ask? Oh, I'll, I'll read it. Um, is there an opportunity for youth to participate in organic oneness? And is it only in Chicago? Oh, good question. Um, so all of our programming and events are open to everybody. Um, definitely high school students to join. Um, you know, we, we talk about topics that kind of uh, aren't developmentally appropriate for younger, um, just because, you know, the way you explain things is sometimes different um, for different age groups. And so high school definitely uh, can participate in our events and programs. Um, we're having a bike ride, uh, as I mentioned before, on October 17th. We had one earlier this summer about the Chicago race riots of 1919. So we had a bike tour in Bronzeville, uh, looking at the different key sites uh, where there was a lot of stuff that happened. And um, so, uh, so that we have uh, trainings on uh, diversity. I have a YouTube channel that talks about how do we stay healthy, you know, as social activists, uh, how do we keep our bodies going so that we don't develop compassion fatigue, burnout, or illness, you know, because dealing with racism and all these uh, social unrest, uh, it, it, it's taxing on our systems. It's, it's adding on another layer of stress that our bodies aren't used to. Uh, and so I have a lot of tips there for um, just eating right uh, and keeping your body going. Um, I do want to, and this is the first time I'm saying this in public, uh, I would like to have a, a musical group here in Chicago. So when I was younger, I was part of the Baha'i Youth Workshop and we, all our materials based on uh, race, unity, gender equality, and the oneness of humankind. And then when I had Baha'i Youth Service Institute, um, we did the same thing. And so I wanna do something very similar. Of course, Baha'i inspired, um, just as my organization is, but uh, you know, talking about social justice, environmental justice, uh, how do we come together? So that, that's my project coming up with youth. So if folks are dancers and rappers and poets and musicians and singers, um, that is definitely in the works for next year. Wonderful, Saida. Devin, again, Devin and Saida. Saida, we do have to get together. Yes. Uh, as always, and as always, keep up the great work, you and Devin, um, and let's just keep working together. So, you know, there'll be the, the next Devin won't have to endure what uh, Devin's had to endure just for the color of his skin. You know, we have to see the color of our hearts. Yeah. The beautiful yeah. color of our hearts and, and celebrate the diversity, like the three of us, three different skin colors. Um, you know, celebrate this diversity and celebrate at the same time the oneness. So yeah, let's do for that. Sure. For sure. Um, oh, and I did want to mention that we did expand to Minneapolis. So the site that is near where George Floyd was killed, um, several Baha'is responded to how, how do we heal 
together as a community. Um, and so one of my board members is out there uh, and we started a branch in Minneapolis. So now we're in Chicago and in Minneapolis. So if you know youth out there, uh, definitely tell them to look out for us. Uh, but thank you. Thank you so much for welcoming me here today and for this amazing conversation. I know I feel rejuvenated um, and I thank you both so much, so much for, for welcoming me. Thank you, Saida. Thank you, Devin. Good night, everybody. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, guys.